0: Welcome to this bonus episode of the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. This episode is an audio recording of our March 24th, 2021, online forum, Vaccine Distribution and Public Health. The development of multiple vaccines for COVID-19 has been an extraordinary feat of science, but it is not the final step in stopping the pandemic. The distribution of these vaccines and the need to continue to address and support public health is equally critical. In this session, we covered vaccine distribution and public health in Maine with Noah Nesson of PCHC and Luann Ballesteros from the Jackson Laboratory. Thanks to our online forum sponsors, the Bioscience Association of Maine and the Jackson Laboratory and media sponsor, Maine Public, for supporting the Maine Science Festival and these forums. One note, while we've edited for audio, if you'd like to get the full experience of the forum, you can find the video recording on the Maine Science Festival YouTube channel. And welcome to this fourth in March uh, forum focusing on COVID. Uh, the Science Festival for uh, most of you who, if you don't know, uh, is the celebration of Maine science. In the before times, we met for a five-day giant celebration of made science by the people who do it. Uh, in in the last uh, two years now, um, well, last year we canceled with the with the ensuing pandemic, and this year we're. We're also not able to meet in person just yet, so we're doing these online forums. We are thrilled to be focusing on COVID in Maine, not thrilled, but you know what I mean, happy happy to talk about the science (laughs) that has been part of helping address COVID in Maine for the past year. And I am uh, over the moon to have with us Luanne Ballesteros from, from Jackson Laboratory and Noah Nissen from PCHC, both of whom are longtime friends of the festival and who have almost always said yes when I've asked them to do something even though they are swamped beyond belief. So I'm deeply grateful to both of them for that. Just very quickly, Luann has been with uh, the Jackson Laboratory since uh, 2015. She has been one of the people who has uh, been really instrumental in helping me figure out the best people at JAX to speak to to make sure we focus on their work and has never flinched when I've told her, I don't want to talk about mice. I want to talk about all the great stuff that the mice helped them do. So I've always been grateful for that. And Noah Nissen is at the uh, Penobscot Community Healthcare. I don't actually even, your chief medical officer, last I knew, I don't know if that's still your title, but Noah has also been a, a huge friend of the festival and it's helped us talk about all sorts of things from opioids to now what he's gonna talk about with vaccine distribution. So we're gonna jump right in. If you uh, can, want to save your questions, we're gonna have both presentations. Uh, Luann's gonna talk about public health aspect that Jackson laboratory has been doing and one's going to talk about vaccine distribution and how it's been addressed in Maine. Save your, uh, just throw your questions in, in the Q&A in the chat. Actually, the Q&A would be great. I've, we've got that monitored. We'll try to get to all of them. And before I go any further, we are able to do these forums entirely because of the support we've gotten from the Jackson laboratory and bioscience association of Maine. Uh, so they have let us do this and and my goal is by the end of this, uh, if, if not by the end of the session, by the end of next week, I will have mastered Zoom webinars. So that will be because of the support we've gotten from these folks. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand it off to Luann and she's going to cover uh, public health in, in the way that Jax has really, really stepped up. And just as a little, little preface, I think this is an untold story, like many things that have happened in the last year with, with the pandemic, because there's been so much coming at us. So I'm
1: thrilled to have you talk about what Jackson Laboratory has done for public health and testing. Great, thanks so much. So at the risk of repeating myself, um, I just said this when we were on the practice session, but it, but it's, um, it is worth repeating. I wanna I want thank Kate because really what, what Kate does with the Science Festival is critically important to Maine, um, to the STEM environment that we're, that we really need to continue to focus on. Um, and her her friendship and partnership, not just to Jack's, but, uh, you know, across the STEM fields and with the general public has been terrific. She does a fabulous job. So thank you for this opportunity. I also want to say, um, you know, she just talked about how I always find her terrific speakers and um, <laughs> today might end up being the exception. I'm vice president for external and government affairs. And I, it's been a really interesting year for me, because I have done, um, my government affairs work has been very different than anything I've ever done in my entire career. And certainly in the 15 years I've been at Jack's, basically, it's, you know, I've had a steady diet of of COVID testing, at least it feels like it for, for both Maine and Connecticut, a little bit in California, where we have facilities, but also um, now it's it's moved into the whole vaccination phase. But know us, we'll, we'll talk more about that. At the Jackson Laboratory, we use Webex um, far more than we use Zoom. And so I want you to bear with me because I'm about to endeavor to share with you um, a video and it may be clunky, but I think it helps lay the, the groundwork for what JAX is, who we are, what we do, um, just to give you the, the kind of a quick overview and so, hold on, we're gonna give this a shot. I've tried it twice and it's been effective, so bear with me if it's clunky. I, I think I'll get there.
2: Imagine Can the everybody hear it and see it? Predict when any disease might occur. You're good, you good. good. any disorder in real time, and even prevent diseases from ever happening. This is the future of medicine, one where we will be able to create a precise roadmap for a disease-free life. As an independent, non-profit research institute focused on genomics research, JAX has nearly a century of experience. The cutting-edge tools, the award-winning researchers, and the foresighted vision to make this exciting future possible. We are an extended family of scientists, employees, friends, and donors who are determined to unravel the mystery of human disease to find cures. In fact, at JAX, cures are in our DNA. We were the first to describe stem cells. We developed the techniques now widely used for human fertility treatments. We performed the first bone marrow transplants. We unlocked the capability for today's organ transplants and 26 Nobel prizes were awarded for discoveries based on our models. These and many other Jack's discoveries continue to save countless lives around the world, and we're driven to do more. We are ready to craft predictive tests, guide lifestyle changes, uncover new prevention methods, and identify new therapies. We are ready to change the face of human health for you. Join us today.
1: I feel so accomplished. (laughs) I actually pulled that off. So what I like about that video is... It gives you a little bit of an introduction into one of the really important things that JAX does that lots of people know us for, and Kate touched on this a little bit, but that we, um, lots of people within the organization think we talk too much about, and that's our mice. Because at the same time that we have our mouse models that we sell to 57 countries in the world and multiple millions of mice uh, every single year, we also have research scientists who, who use those mice to find medical discoveries but we also have a really robust education program. So one one more slide. I wanna, I wanna share a slide with you that just sort of gives you a little bit of information about, about JAX specifically in Maine. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to share again. This is the slide that uh, is most important to me. So in Maine, we have 1,700 employees. We're the 15th largest private employer. And aside from the hospitals and the academic institutions, we're, we're actually the largest nonprofit. Our, our average um, new salary hire amount is $60,650. And in the fine print, you can see that the, the average in Maine is 46,000. We had 239 new hires in Maine. And, and just to let you know, this data is based on 2019. We're working on our 2020, um, we're always a year behind 2020 um, economic impact report now. but. The thing that excites me about about the new hires um, is that about 15% every year, between 15 and 20, actually come from outside of Maine, and they're young people. You know, they're average age, 32.9, and a lot of them bring families. This matters a lot if you pay any attention to the demographic information that comes out about Maine, because we're in a panic all the time about a flat, um, you know, demographic in terms of growth. We're the oldest state in the union, blah, blah, blah. You've all heard it. But our our employment growth is from 2013 to 2019 is 22%. That means that we've added employees to the Jackson Laboratory at a rate that's 3.7 times greater than the average rate in Maine. And our payroll has increased 1.7 times faster than other payrolls, um, the average in the state. We have employees in 84 different municipalities representing 12 of the state's 16 counties. I actually live in Glenburn. I've got a 90-minute commute each way to get to the lab. I've been doing it for 16 years, except for this past year, which I, I haven't missed the drive. I have missed the, the colleagues, but and then JAX invests about $75 million or more every single year in capital expenditures in Maine. And those expenditures create 581 indirect jobs. And then our, our buildings, you know, most of you probably know we have a facility in Bar Harbor that's Significant on 169 acres. It's a million square feet under roof, and then we have our new facility in Ellsworth. We have about 350 employees there, and that's a 343,000 square foot building where we do where we do production. So I am going to stop sharing that for now, and chat with you a little bit about about how we piece these things together. So our director Ed Lou um, is an MD. He's also a research scientist came to the United States to San Francisco when he was five years old. Um, but for a period of time in the early 2000s, he was actually in Singapore running a genome institute. And as it turns out, while he was there, the first SARS epidemic, worldwide epidemic started and, and Ed was in charge of leading the SARS epidemic for, for Singapore. So when, when COVID first started becoming just something that was intermittently on the news and no one had any idea that it would be a pandemic. Ed began to worry about it being a pandemic and he began talking to all of us on the leadership team very early on, not wringing his hands but but concerned, greatly concerned about the US's capability to respond. And he was saying as early as late January, early February, we're going to need to test. We're going to have to test. We're going to have to test, to test everybody. We're going to have to test frequently. Um, and it was basically internal to JAX, all hands on deck. We sort of stopped doing everything except figuring out how do we keep the Jackson Laboratories employees safe? How do we lend our assistance to others, um, the state, anyone that needed it, basically. And fortunately, About seven years ago at our facility in Connecticut, we actually became CLIA certified. So we have a clinical lab in Connecticut where we were doing, for the most part, tumor testing for organizations, hospitals, et cetera, in the state of Maine and through our uh, Maine Cancer Genomics Institute, which is at the hospital in Augusta. And so we just ramped up in like a three-week period of time. We went from... 14 employees at our CLIA lab over the next few months to 94 employees, which is where we have been um, since we first started doing testing. At the time, the state of Connecticut was able to do about 25 tests per week at their Department of Public Health, and the state of Maine was in a similar vicinity um, at our CDC in terms of doing COVID testing. You all lived it along with everybody else. It was um, you know, where do we get the swabs? And come to find out, how how great is it that Maine's the only domestic producer of nasopharyngeal swabs and anterior near swabs? And and that's a fantastic story. But we just we really ramped up. We started doing doing outreach. Um, we ended up helping the University of Maine through the entire semester with um, daily testing of all of the folks that were at the university, both students, faculty, staff. We made sure that Maine Maritime Academy was able to do their fast cruise so that their students that were seniors could graduate. We're still testing um, and we we did all last semester, but we're still testing with the University of Maine. I mean, I'm sorry, with Maine Maritime Academy and likely we'll do so right straight through this semester and probably do surveillance testing. But we also did, and let me bring that, let me share again the slides. You can see the different organizations that we worked with and and continue to work with. We are doing testing with Cary Medical Center up in Caribou. They're small numbers, but they come in every day. Um, We did testing with the University of Maine until they they got their own system up and running, which is awesome for them. Integra Health, Island Nursing, Maine Maritime Academy, Maine General. You can see the numbers here. But we really did um, and, and continue to do it's it's super helpful for those organizations and for basically public health in the state of Maine that there's an option that isn't a commercial option like Quest or whatever. And and the state's just not equipped to do all the testing that needed to be done. So the the other piece of what we did at our CLIA lab that was a differentiator, um, not just for Jax, but for, for all the testing facilities, there were times in the first four or five months of the pandemic, where it was seven, eight days to get a test result back. And Jax was doing 24 hour turnaround time. So for Maine, what that looked like is the specimens got picked up in Maine, got by courier were taken down to Connecticut. And then the test results from the time when they arrived, which is usually about 1.30 in the morning, within 24 hours, the test results came back. So basically for all of the Maine facilities that have been working with us, it's, it's about 48 hours, which was, a, was significantly better than anything um, that anybody else was able to accomplish. So in, a, in addition to testing within the state of Maine, the other thing that we did is, and this was super important to the actual research into the vaccine and research into different treatments. We talked a little bit about models, about mice, there wasn't a good mouse model available at the beginning of the pandemic. And by a good mouse model, I mean a model that manifests the disease in the same way, sorry about that, in the same way that um, human beings actually acquire the disease in the way that it manifests itself and actually in the way, um, as a model to be able to test drugs and even a vaccine. So we, one of the things that Jax is an expert at is, is mice and in creating specific mouse models that have very specific genetic recipe, right? So we brought um, we brought the mouse model from another organization into the Jackson Laboratory, and it was a model that had been used previously in for the first SARS epidemic, but had never actually been bred at a large scale. So in a matter of months, we brought that colony of mice up and began selling those mice, distributing them to multiple organizations, um, pharmaceutical companies, research institutions, and, and we're still do, doing the same thing with that model. So it, it really helped advance the discovery of vaccines, the discovery of drug treatments for the folks that were, were struggling with, with COVID-19 because not everybody has the same reaction to COVID as, as you likely know. The other thing that JAX did during the pandemic is we helped locally with something called the Hancock County COVID Response Team or the task force. And basically, as you know, the state of Maine was pretty much closed to much traffic from, from tourism. And we worked really closely for the traffic that was able to come into the state. We worked really closely with businesses, with the school system, with the national park to just... Help put in place protocols for, um, you know, for safety. We helped, we can, we donated tests for businesses and their staff. And throughout all of this, with all of the partners that we worked with, because we had access to PPE and, and actually to swabs and to the media that the swab goes into after the test, the specimen is acquired, we were able to Donate those to all of the folks that we were were working with, um, and actually to folks that we weren't working with who were desperate to get their hands on them. And I have to say, in full disclosure, that we I knew more about about swabs um, and about Puritan than the average person because my husband happens to work at Puritan, so it, it made it was a really nice connection for Jacks um, and and for folks in Maine that were um, collaborating with us, but. The other final thing that we've been doing since December, which is really important, is um, one of our research scientists, his name's Ryan Tui, has been working with the main CDC from the very beginning to test a certain percentage of the positive specimens that go into the main CDC. And he's actually doing full genome sequencing on the virus and identifying variants of, of the virus and sharing that information back with the state. And when I last checked, Maine was actually leading in terms of the percentage of positives that were being um, sequenced. So I know the governor is quite proud of that fact as is Jax. So I think that covers it, at least the view from 30,000 feet, how Jax was involved. And I will pass this on, I guess, back to Kate unless you want yeah, to back to questions. me. I know
0: I said we were going to do, I was going to, hand, you know, not get in the way, but I can't help myself. I have one quick question before we get it to Noah. Okay. Um, what is the testing that you were doing? We The CLIA lab was talked about actually in one of our other forums. So folks uh, can check out that out on our YouTube channel. So if you could just explain what the testing actually was. Um, so in, in terms of- spit test. Oh okay, sure. Like, like literally, the because the 48 hour turnaround time was huge back then, right? Like the I remember what felt like, it feels like it was years and years ago, but everybody was like, you know, seven or eight days, you might as well not have a test
1: at all. So what was the testing that you were doing? Right. So we started like everybody with a nasopharyngeal swab. And I don't know if anybody's ever watched a video or experienced a nasopharyngeal swab, but your, your nasopharyngeal area is way back here. And I can, I'll give you a, a little Anecdote, my eight-year-old granddaughter had a nasopharyngeal swabbing and and uh, she told her father on the way home in the car, in no uncertain terms, that she would rather die of COVID than have another one of those. So <laughs> I think I think everybody that had had to have an what we call NP, nasopharyngeal swabbing kind of it's not something you wanted to do weekly or bi-weekly, which is what we we were testing Jack's employees bi-weekly, right? So we quickly moved to, everybody did move to other ways to collect the specimen, right? And we moved to an anterior nair. So an anterior nair swabbing, if you haven't had had, had a COVID test, that the swab goes in to your nostril, up, up about to here, goes around, you know, eight times on each side, and then it goes into the media that's the preservative and then away it, it goes to us. But there were also, I know the University of Maine on some of the remote campuses, they used Vault, which is a vendor, and they did the saliva test. But the saliva test, and we were able to do saliva tests. We could receive those, but it it became, um, it's difficult because it takes like 10 or 15 minutes to get a saliva test, to get all the bubbles out of it. It's just a lot longer process, more labor intensive, et cetera. And an AN swabbing, especially once you get used to it, you've had it two or three times, it's very quick. And and with guidance, you can actually do an AN swab um, specimen collection yourself. And that's, we ended up doing that at Jack's. And then once the specimen gets to our CLIA lab in Connecticut, it's a PCR test. So we're, we are actually testing for the presence of the virus as opposed to some, some folks are doing antibody tests like the rapid tests. They're actually testing to see do you have antibodies. Have you either been exposed or do you have the virus now and you're creating your immune systems creating antibodies to fight that. So we were testing for the presence of the virus as opposed to for the presence of an immune response to the virus. Great. We, if you
0: have questions on public health, I have more, but I'm gonna save them. So thank you, Luann. And uh, we will pass this off to Noah. Noah, the floor you, is Kate. yours and thank we will you. get
3: out of the way. Thank you, Luann, that was great. Thank you, Kate, for inviting me. And I'm gonna share my screen and we'll and we'll get right into this. And I've, I've titled this, as you can see, medical ethics, practical reality, public health and personal risk, because I think these are the things that are at attention And that you see debated in the context of vaccine distribution in Maine and across the country. And, and, you know, ethics is always about tension between two good values. It's especially manifest in this context. So the advisory committee on immunization practices uh, developed ethical principles to guide vaccine distribution prior to the approval of the vaccines that we have right now. So this was published in uh, the, MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, report in late November of 2020 and gave you know ethical principles that might guide distribution of vaccines. This wasn't the only resource available. Lots of institutions created papers on what ethical distribution of vaccine in this country and around the world might look like Johns Hopkins had a group that included Ezekiel Emanuel that was, that was quite interesting, a quite interesting framing of this. It's been interesting to see how, you know, when, when those principles get put up against the practical reality of vaccine distribution in a country like the US, how uh, things change. So these were the four guiding principles that this group recommended, maximizing benefit and minimizing harm. Hard to argue with that promoting a just approach to distribution, using distribution to mitigate health inequities and a transparent process so that the public understood um, the rationale behind the decisions that uh, would get made in the distribution of the vaccine. So to to, uh, explicate these a little further on maximizing benefit and minimizing harm, these are the things that they called out specifically, you know, identify what groups are at highest risk Um, for disease hospitalization and death and you know one of the key groups is by age especially people 70 and older there there's a rapidly escalating risk for hospitalization and death with COVID infection so that was easy and the CDC lists a number of chronic conditions that put people at greater risk obesity is one of them for sure and people in certain circumstances for instance congregate living where the disease can be, be spread quite readily and unfortunately people who live in congregate living situations often have other conditions, such as age or chronic disease burden that put them at additional risk. What groups are essential to COVID-19 response? So everybody agreed that frontline healthcare workers were at the front of that line and, and frontline healthcare workers benefited from that designation were the first recipients of this vaccine once emergency use authorization was granted. Um, but there are lots of other, you know, people who could be considered essential. The Biden administration decided that teachers were essential, and and school staff and childcare professionals, and um, and it's a totally reasonable decision. Food food chain workers, you know, are are essential frontline workers, etc. Public safety. Um, so, uh, how should they be considered? what groups are essential to maintaining critical functions of society, you know, the power grid and healthcare delivery system and food delivery system and, you know, all of that. So, and what are the important characteristics of these groups that might inform the magnitude of benefit based on the amount of vaccine available or its characteristics? So this manifests itself with the Pfizer vaccine, which was the first to be approved for use because especially early on, the extreme cold storage and uh, transportation chain complications uh, that are necessary, the limited availability of that cold storage capacity once you get out of urban centers and and healthcare tertiary healthcare centers. So, getting you know Pfizer vaccine, especially initially, into Jackman, Maine, was going to be a challenging process. So that's an example of the kind of thing that might've been covered by um, this last bullet point. Promoting justice, does the allocation plan, distribution plan result in fair and equitable access for the, of the vaccine for all groups? I think we've all seen examples of failure in this regard. You know, For instance, uh, we've heard about in, in the Miami area, wealthy people sort of getting access to the vaccine, potentially through political donations. How do characteristics of the vaccine and logistical considerations affect fair access? The Pfizer vaccine, again, is a great example of that. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine may be an opposite opposite example of that where it's a very effective uh, and very safe vaccine that only requires one dose and doesn't require all the cold storage. And so it makes a lot of sense for a lot of settings. And because it's single dose, removes some of the complication of follow-up vaccine and confers immunity three to four weeks earlier than three weeks earlier than Pfizer will, and, and four weeks earlier than Moderna will. And that's important for both personal and public health considerations. And does allocation planning include input from groups who are disproportionately affected by COVID 19? So, do they have a voice in the decision making around all of this? And I think we heard in Maine that pe- the folks, people who suffered disproportionately severe impact from COVID, especially new Mainers and, and people of color in Maine did not feel that they had an adequate voice in the initial planning and distribution of vaccine. In mitigating health inequities, does it identify and address barriers to vaccination? We're all still working on this, transportation, communication, internet access, comfort with uh, using, using uh, the internet for gaining access to appointments, et cetera. Does the allocation plan contribute to a reduction in health disparities? And it's interesting that this publication did not call out specifically disparities by race, but racial disparities in all healthcare outcomes and in healthcare access in this country are the biggest persistent disparity that we see in almost every aspect of healthcare. And it's certainly been true in terms of both the impact of the disease from COVID-19 and the access to and access to vaccine and vaccine hesitancy. What health inequities might inadvertently result from allocation? the allocation plan, and we don't want to exacerbate things, and what interventions can remove or reduce them? And is there a mechanism for timely assessment of coverage among groups experiencing disadvantage and, um, and course correction if, if needed? And I think we've started to see some course correction, although I think lots of people would argue not enough. And then promote, promoting transparency, does the development plan uh, uh, for allocation include diverse input? This is sort of uh, redundant of a prior point and a prior bullet. Are they evidence-based and publicly available? Is the plan clear about what is known and unknown? I think uh, Dr. Shaw and the main CDC have been exceptionally good at both being transparent and at, at making clear what is known and what is unknown and how those are considered in the distribution process. What's the process for the revision a, of the allocation plans and mechanisms for um, reporting demographic data? That's still, I would say, imperfect in Maine. They're working on it and it's getting it's getting better. And you can now see on the Maine vaccination dashboard um, distribution of vaccine by demographic data, much more than just age. Um, so that's all I have for slides. I'm going to stop my share. Now, and talk briefly about how we've gone about allocation in Maine and some of the nuances around that. So, I think everybody's now aware that Maine, the Maine CDC, and the administration and Department of Human Services decided that in Maine, the most impactful approach would be based on age. And that because age, especially at hot, at, uh, in the elderly, age is such a high risk factor for complications, but more uh, appropriately or more uh, relevant that the lack of, utter lack of of a meaningful public health infrastructure would make any other uh, prioritization so labor intensive that it would slow down the distribution of vaccine to the extent that it would cause potentially more harm than good when you're talking about public health. When we talk about individual health, of course, we'd like to reach the, you know, early on the 47-year-old with lots of uh, risk factors as opposed to the 70 year old with no health problems, but the logistics of that without a public health infrastructure and without access to the information about individual health that would come from, for instance, electronic health records that were entirely interoperable, able to communicate with each other, which none of them are, is a big barrier. So they chose age and the mass vaccination sites and and other efforts to do that make a lot of sense in that regard going into the nursing facilities for congregate living early on to protect the most vulnerable and where we'd had the most significant and harmful outbreaks make, made a lot of sense. And as they gained access to more vaccine, those the guidance behind those became um, more clear about you know when you could give vaccine to people who fell outside of those ranges, which is essentially uh, to avoid wasting vaccine, were allowed to go outside of those guidances. Um, all of this, of course, followed First, the immunization of frontline healthcare workers and first responders. The mass vaccination sites, there's no question, are going are to be the most important and most impactful way of getting vaccine to enough people to get a, to um, more rapidly approach herd immunity in this state and across the country. But they're not the full answer in a rural state like Maine. And, and so the vaccines that have been provided to other entities like us at PCHC allow us to go at this in a slightly different way. So at PCHC, initially we were receiving a couple hundred vaccines from the state each week. Now we have access as a federally qualified health center to direct shipment of vaccine from, from HERSA, from the federal government. And we anticipate in the coming weeks that we'll have, we had been getting about 1200 a week. We think we'll get more than that in, in the coming weeks. And our approach has been both for our own patients um, within the age groups following the state's guidelines on age we're able to using our own data to prioritize people by their risk so we started with people over 70 who had three or more chronic diseases that put them at greatest risk worked through that list then two or more than one uh, plus obesity and parallel to that process in each age group have identified our patients who are who were black, indigenous, or people of color because they are so disproportionately impacted by this pandemic and have suffered such historical health and healthcare access inequities uh, that as a matter of equity, we've included them as priority people for vaccine among our own patients. And then we've used some of our vaccine supply to help smaller healthcare uh, organizations who can't get their own vaccine to immunize their frontline healthcare workers. We've used it once teachers and and staff became priorities to help some school systems um, do focused vaccination for their employees. And we've also gone outside of our own patient population to vulnerable populations in congregate living situations that aren't nursing homes and didn't qualify for that first round of vaccinations in senior and subsidized housing, going again by the age groups and in going into um, organizations that might help overcome vaccine hesitancy. So we worked with the church to, to give vaccine onsite at the church for people in their community, including their church members, but others who met the age criteria, who might feel more comfortable or safer doing it in a familiar environment. We're gonna to continue to do that work with religious organizations and others to try to overcome vaccine hesitancy by having people they trust you know, involved in the process in a site with which they're familiar and in which they're comfortable. We're also providing educational sessions um, for the public through Facebook Live events and in other forums um, to answer people's questions about vaccine because people are understandably concerned about safety, concerned about um, how this might impact their lives have very practical considerations like can they afford to miss a couple days of work if they get a bad adverse effect from the vaccine or even mild symptoms but symptoms that mimic COVID and therefore would preclude them from going to work. So we want to help people with all that decision making as well. And then lastly you know we've distributed vaccine We have a site in Jackman, so we continue to distribute vaccine to Jackman to try and make it easier for folks who are in a community like that to access vaccine easily, whether there are patients or not. We do the same thing in Waldo County through our practice in Belfast, and we're part of a consortium of of, uh, federally qualified health centers and smaller hospitals who are working to collaborate to distribute vaccine as well into more rural areas to people who would, who might be challenged coming to the CROSS Center, for instance, for a mass vaccination site. A lot of it's made easier now by the increasing availability of vaccines in pharmacies and other settings in people's own communities. And I'll close by saying it looks very promising that in April, the state's supply of vaccine may increase dramatically. And we're all hopeful about that. It looks very promising. And as we've seen throughout um, the vaccine effort, the dates for which we initially think we'll, you know, will advance the next group, keep getting moved up. I even think it's possible that the opening to all Mainers could, I I have no inside information on this, but I think it could move up earlier than April 19th because when we see across the state, I know when the Maine CDC and the governor and the commissioner of the Department of Health and Human Services, see that the Cross Center, for instance, last weekend had unfilled slots for people 16 and older. That's a cue to lower the age. That's a cue to expand the denominator. And I think that you know that with increasing supply of vaccine, it's possible that those dates will get shifted once more. But even if they don't, April 19th now is a pretty promising date for people 16 and older to, to all be able to start to access. Um, vaccine. And I think it will get easier and easier to access vaccine as well. And so I'll stop there.
0: That was fantastic, both of you. Folks, if you've got questions, throw them in the chats. Um, I have a million, so I can easily take up the time. But I will I will seed my questions if other people have them. But I do want to circle back to uh, at least one thing that you said, uh, Luann, and we've spoken about this uh, in the past as well. I know that Jackson Laboratory worked with not just the universities that you mentioned, but also school systems and school districts. And that is a still a critical piece. I think testing going forward is still going to be really important. So could you talk a little
1: bit about what you've been doing with kind of the K through 12 audience of of people? So the big initiative that we had, which was very early on in the pandemic, JAX has a fantastic. Um, you know, our, our, our staff is awesome. We have a really amazing uh, facilities group. And, and it was in, in an effort to make sure that Jack's employees stayed safe, but that Jack's business continued, uh, the research, the production, all the support services for that, the education. We very quickly de-densified the campus. So there was were only critical employees that needed to be on campus to get their job done, did that. And so our facilities team swung into, it was amazing to watch between um, the cleaning and the de-densification and the, you know, how do you make sure people are socially distanced, et cetera. They put together an amazing plan and, and we just had the resources to do that. And so what we did, it started with the superintendent in Bar Harbor, but what we ended up doing is inviting all of the superintendents for all of the schools in the entire state of Maine to join us for, basically, it was a seminar. All of our experts were in our auditorium seated in the front. It was a WebEx. Um, We had all the presentation materials, each of the area expertise. So our HR department, our facilities department, our research folks, Ed and our scientific director in Maine did a presentation on the virus, what it is, how it spreads, what we know about it, what we don't know about it, all of the things that Noah talked about in terms of, you know, just from a public health perspective. And we had all of that available to them. I want to say it was two hours long. And obviously not every single superintendent joined us, but there were dozens of them. Maybe, maybe more than hundred actually attended and um, the questions just went on and on and on. And then we shared the materials after the fact. And so basically it was everything that we had learned about, um, about cleaning, right? In, in, in each of the offices and each spaces about and, and facilities cleaning, about adaptations that we had to make to the space to make sure people that had to be in offices together were able to be safe. It was a basically a comprehensive package like a book here you guys take this this is what we know about best practices at this point in time we had digested everything that came out of the cdc because all of that there was so much information and it was pretty dense and it was in lots of different locations and so we basically put a package together and, and shared it broadly we had videos that were on our public website that were available. All I had to do was jump on there, click, watch, you know, and implement. So, and that was in preparation for the coming
0: for the school year. It, that was like starting twenty twenty one, right? So people could feel comfortable that they could actually figure out a way to have some kids in the classroom. Ac- actually,
1: it occurred that occurred. Um, so when it was in twenty twenty, months into the into the pandemic, I, and I I'm trying to remember God, so much as. Time has best in so many things. It may have been, um, it may have been in the summer of 2020 when when we weren't sure whether people were going to be going back to school or not. While they were preparing to do just that, right? So, in some school systems, it go back to school. I mean, my grandchildren have been in school in Glenburn since the end of August. So it depended on, you know, where they, how school systems responded, what their what their ability to actually implement the plans um, that were being, you know, the information being sent out by the CDC and, and other experts. Super helpful. No, we have a
0: question from the audience for you. Can you talk a little bit about the waste lists? So waste is in quotes at vaccination sites. Are there a lot of missed appointments or leftover vaccines and people who, and should people who are not eligible for the vaccine get on those lists? And if so, how do you go about it?
3: Uh, yeah, so, so the concern about waste is that once you puncture a vial, you have six hours to use everything that's in that vial. In addition, uh, it, most of the time we're able to get extra doses out of vials. Uh, um, at PCHC, we've been reliably able to get two extra doses per vial. So we plan on that now, but not everybody's able to do, plan on that. So once you puncture a vial, either because people haven't showed up uh, at the end of the day or because you end up with an odd number of people, you may end up with a vial that has extra doses or in a large site, many vials that have doses that will go unused if not given within six hours. And so that's when they start working through. The guidance is that among the people you can consider first are people who are volunteering at that injection site Go, but even they should be prioritized by age and risk factors. So you'd start with, you know by, with right now people over 50 who are volunteering, and if you can't use it up that way, you'd go to younger people or people with risk factors for for more severe COVID disease. So the answer is yes, if you're able to get on wait lists, even if you're not in the age room age range, you might get access to a vaccine it varies from site to site, even from system to system. So I know some Walgreens stores, for instance, do have a way mm-hmm. of signing up to be on their waste list and others don't. And so I think it's, I think you can, you can look at the at the vaccination uh, sites in pharmacies and the mass vaccination sites, especially in areas to which you could travel on short notice and just call and ask how to get put on their waste list and do it in that manner. There is, you know, there is, and once you, if it's a two dose vaccine that you're offered and I would take whatever vaccine they offer, I have no concerns about any of the three vaccines being better or not as good as the others. Um, But if it's a two dose vaccine, you're offered, once you get the first one, then you, then you will have access to a second dose in the right timeframe. That's been an ongoing commitment from the main CDC and from our, from our, in our experience, that's been um, they fulfilled that commitment. Um, so yeah, it's worth it's worth doing. And mobility and uh, mobility matters, matters in getting access. Communication matters, which unfortunately means, well, maybe fortunately, that younger, more mobile people are probably more apt to get these waste doses than older, less mobile people. But older people now you know, people 50 and over have the ability to get appointments for vaccine now anyway.
0: I know, I got my first shot yesterday. I've never been so happy to be.
3: That's my very-
0: eight-year-old <laughs> self can't believe how excited my 50 plus <laughs> self was to get a shot. Um, felt the same way. Two other quick questions while we, we were talking about them. So Louanne, you said that, that Maine leads the country, uh, which is a phrase that I say often and love to say, but with looking for variants. Um, and this will slide into a little bit uh, to what you had mentioned, now about the different vaccines and efficacy, but do you have any idea how many variants have been found? And is there any, and, and I, I'm putting you on the spot. I know you That's may okay. not- That's okay, no, no, I talk about this every morning, but okay. I should have. Um... I mean, just, just a general one. And then my understanding has been, and, and I know that we will get into this in deep, in detail next week with our vaccine, our specific COVID vaccine form. Is there any sense that either one of you have
1: for how the current vaccines have been dealing with those variants? Noah's gonna have a lot more to say about this than, than I will. So I will say, I believe, in, and I can't speak. So, so when I get a report, we talk every morning at eight o'clock in the CLIA lab, the information is combined. So we're not separating necessarily where these variants are being identified. So obviously Connecticut's a much larger population. We have identified um, four or five different variants that are present in that population. I know that there are multiple variants in Maine. I don't know. And when I say we're leading, uh, I don't mean necessarily in the number of variants we've identified, but in sequencing positive specimens in search of the variants. No, I knew
0: that. I I knew you didn't. I didn't mean that we were leading in the variants. No, I just want to make
1: sure because people are very, very worried about variants, right? Very, very point. Very, Thank okay. you. So, and then, and, and then no one will know more about, you know, what does that mean that we're identifying variants? I mean, viruses, they do what they do, right?
3: Right. Viruses are mutating continuously and, and the longer a virus is allowed to circulate widely like COVID has been, you know, it's not been long in the big view of things, but, it, you know, the longer we go without controlling this pandemic, the more potential for additional mutations that are meaningful so most of the mutations aren't meaningful, but once in a while, those are arise that are, are harmful, like the what's known as the South African or the UK or the Brazilian variants that are that we're all concerned about now. So the UK variant, for instance, is more transmissible, um, and the South African and Brazilian variants, we're concerned might cause more severe disease. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, people are concerned about, you know, its lower effectiveness in the mid 60s. Uh, reported worldwide, but in the in the mid 70s in the U.S., um, but it was tested at a different time when there was more disease and when the variants were already present, and we don't know what Moderna and Pfizer would have looked like if they had been tested at the same time. And I think the important thing to know about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is that it's 100% effective for severe disease, hospitalization, and death. You know, preliminary study out of Israel indicates that you know it may very well be that these vaccines also prevent us from catch, having an infection at a level that, that allows us to transmit it to other people. More study has to be done on that, but it's, it's promising looking. I do think that there's, that there's evidence that, uh, at least against the UK variant, that we can be reasonably hopeful that these vaccines are going to be very effective. And I think there's evidence with the South African variant as well. I'm not, I'm not as sure about the Brazilian variant, but, uh, you know, I think that we can hope that there will be without as much evidence to support that hope as with the other two. And I think in the law, you know, I think most people expect that we're going to need to have boosters to this vaccine to maintain meaningful immunity and prevent the emergence of a new pandemic from this virus or its variants. And, and meanwhile, the race is to try to get to herd immunity in this country and around the world, because that's how you're actually gonna end the pandemic before too many more of these harmful variants develop or variants develop that are truly resistant to uh, the vaccines that we've developed so far.
0: And one final, we have time for one more question. Um, I, I think this probably mostly applies to Jackson Laboratory. Where did you receive funding for the work that you've done?
1: Because you've done a lot of work, so um, you know, um, I, I'd have to that that question. I'd have to pick at that question just a little bit. Much of okay. the much of the so, for instance, all of the sequencing work um, that's been done so far. We're hoping that to to get into a contractual arrangement, but since last since the pandemic started, basically. Um, Dr. Tui's lab, he he with his startup package, he has absorbed all those costs. He has not been paid for that work at all. With respect to the donation of all of the swabs and the media and all of that stuff, Jack's absorbed that cost as well. And then with then for the startup costs for the the equipment, et cetera, you know, that we used to get the CLIA lab, you know, by the thermo Fisher and all of that stuff, we also absorbed that. and then we began charging for, for the testing, but we were very competitive and still are with our, with the cost of our tests. Hope that helps.
0: Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think, um, I think it's fair to say that there hasn't been funding across the board and we're still trying to figure it all out. I mean, that's, that's not just true for Jacks. That's true for everybody. And Noah right. pointed out earlier when one question I had was, you know, the, what it, the utter lack of public health infrastructure and, we're gonna to have to fix that one way or the other, or just have this space us again. That's that's my little soapbox. I probably shouldn't get on there for, it, but it's it's very clear to me that the infrastructure is not there, and you have to do funding to get it. And I
1: will just- I will tell you because from the very beginning I was part of a team of three colleagues who we were really responsible for making sure, just figuring out this whole testing thing. And it sounds it seems so easy now that it's been done, right? But it wasn't easy, and in California and in Maine and in Connecticut, the if I have a single lesson that I could walk away from with respect to this pandemic, it's that the IT infrastructure, the ability to be able to communicate data in a, in a um, confidential way, that was the biggest nut to crack. And, and you know, I just, blew my mind that within the state of Maine, there's, there's no single way for hospitals or clinical clinicians, for test sites to communicate data. How do you get a positive test result? How do you send the CDC the information? It was mind boggling to me.
0: I'm going to hazard a guess Maine is not alone in that.
1: No. You're, you would be you would be absolutely right. I mean, or it the, would be if the federal government could figure out a way that that you know. And I know there's lots of reasons that nobody wants to do this, but next pandemic we have something in place. You just pull the trigger, and there's a, an ability to you know, like the I'm I'm gonna date myself, but I can remember when watching TV at midnight the emergency broadcast system thing would come on, right? If we could if we could do something like that in a crisis, it would be great. Yeah, and I would argue. um, Again, we don't need it just for a
0: pandemic. It would be helpful just in many, many other ways.
3: Many, many many other ways.
0: (laughs) Yes. All right. With that, I am going to do a quick screen share here. So next week is our very last one, our very last session. Super excited about this. I've heard Elizabeth give uh, two different versions of this talk just since February. She has done an extraordinary job researching and keeping Tabs on all the different vaccines out there and how they work with the viruses. So there were a couple of questions in the chat about that. We, I know Laura, you touched on them a little bit. If you want a deep dive, I cannot recommend joining us. I cannot recommend enough joining us for next week. All your questions will be answered about efficacy, what it means, what does efficiency mean, what are the different, how do the different vaccines work? Uh, she does a really wonderful job and that will That will do it for us with regards to COVID in Maine. And um, my hope is after March, after this March is finished, we can circle back, take a breath and start talking about all the great science that happens in Maine on a regular basis, including the work that you're all doing. Very, very grateful again for your time. I know you're both swamped. When we are all able to get back together again, we're going to have some type of science party. I don't even beyond the festival. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it will be a lot of fun. And I encourage everyone who's on here to join us and and you all as well. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Kate. Thank you, you, Noah. And thanks to everybody for jumping on and and listening. I appreciate it.
0: Maine Science Festival has received sponsorship support for this bonus Maine Science Podcast Forum episode from the Bioscience Association of Maine, the Jackson Laboratory, and Maine Public. Main Science Podcast was recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discover Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The variation on the Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.